Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 66, July 2023. Shakespeare's Magical Keyboard. Hello, Paul Meyer here. This episode is all about the Swan of Avon, as Ben Jonson lovingly referred to Shakespeare. My own homage to him is my ebook, Voicing Shakespeare. Read it before or after you listen to this podcast. I wrote it to help actors turn the greatest words ever written into the greatest words ever spoken. Setting it apart from similar publications are 76 audio and video performances of great Shakespeare speeches embedded in the text. They vividly illustrate the techniques under discussion. They're performed by 17 fellow professional actors and me from England, the United States, Canada and Australia. With voicing Shakespeare on your computer, your classical acting work will take a giant step forward, I promise. In a special appendix, ten great Shakespeare audition speeches are analysed, scanned and scored, and the skilled men and women of the company perform them. Download it, text and embedded audio and video for just $29 US. From the Other Products tab on the menu bar at palmeye.com. But before our adventures with Shakespeare today, here's our quiz, Guess That Accent. Last time I played this clip from the Idea Archive and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Actually, each week, one of us would get a choice. We would pick who would go where and where whoever picked the choice, that's where we would go. And we were pretty good about that. And we used to have a great time and that was a lot of fun. And it's interesting because as... I got married and I had two children. I have a son and a daughter. We used to do the same thing. Every Sunday we would pick, Allie or John would get to pick where they would like to go for a um, a Sunday. If you guessed New York City, congratulations. It was Ideas New York 8, contributed by Alexandra Goodman, with scholarly commentary by senior editor Eric Armstrong, who's also one of the performers in Voicing Shakespeare. Thanks again, Eric and Alexandra. The speaker is Jewish, a real estate agent, lived all her life in the Bronx, and was 57 years old when Alexandra recorded her in the year 2000. To hear the whole recording, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com and drill down to New York on the USA page. Now, this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? In the old clockwork mechanism watches, if you went up the mount with a old-style watch on, it would stopped working because the magnetic pull was that strong. Get the answer next time. No guest this month, just me, on my favourite hobby horse, Shakespeare. My very first episode on this podcast was on Shakespeare's original pronunciation, O.P., You know, I found that an examination of Shakespeare's verse rhythms is hugely enhanced by a little knowledge of OP. So, why not download my ebook, The Original Pronunciation of Shakespeare's English, text with embedded audio, if you want your mind blown as mine was back in 2005. The ebook is free, by the way. How amazing that linguists have been able to reconstruct that accent. Details on my Shakespeare page. That's on the coaching tab on the menu bar 
of palmeye.com. Then in episode 15, Phil Thompson and I talk about rhythm in spoken English and touch on Shakespeare from time to time. Jan Gist, that giant among us, now recently retired after decades with the Old Globe in San Diego, joined me for episode number 36, Shakespeare's Shapely Language. I often replay that just for fun. Haydn Language and Black Playwrights with Jacqueline Springfield, episode number 43, is highly relevant to this topic too. She's a master. And finally, the most recent episode on the topic is number 58, Gideon Burton, who knows as much about classical rhetoric as anyone alive, is my guest. So, if you're in the mood for a Shakespeare binge, these six episodes are for you. It's a great playlist. This month, I promised to take the fear out of the dreaded term, iambic pentameter. And if you're a metrophobe, I hope I can do that. But instead of just going over the familiar definitions, let's jump straight to a famous speech in iambic pentameter and hear meter in action. I've chosen Edmund's Now God's Stand Up for Bastard's speech. King Lear, Act 1, Scene 2. I perform it both in voicing Shakespeare and also on my website. I put my transcription of the speech in OP with my recording of it on the webpage devoted to this podcast episode. And I put a link to my recording of it there, too, in my own accent. There you will also find the speech scanned and scored. Scanning, or scansion, is an analysis of the meter. We find out through scansion where the speech is in the perfect de dum de dum de dum de dum de dum rhythm, and where it's not, and why not, and with what effect. Scoring, on the other hand, is to point out other devices, like antitheses, one, one concept contrasted with another, and catalogues, lists, and rhetorical tropes like alliteration. To get the most out of what I'm about to discuss, you really should open the webpage devoted to today's episode and read along with me. So go to paulmeyer.com and on the Other Services tab on the menu bar, choose In a Manner of Speaking and then click episode number 66. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button to listen to all episodes from my site. The setup for the speech, if you're rusty on the King Lear story. Edmund, born out of wedlock, reveals to us in this soliloquy that he's planning to rob his legitimate half-brother, Edgar, of his inheritance by planting a fictitious and malicious letter to convince their dad, the Earl of Gloucester, that Edgar is plotting against him. That's the letter he refers to in the speech, slipping it out of his pocket and showing it to us, no doubt. It will also help you to remember that the old term for a bastard is a natural. That is to say, a natural child. You'll hear Edmund swear a vividly unorthodox oath to nature. Nater, as he would pronounce it in OP. His goddess. Nater, his goddess. What a dangerous heresy the first audiences would have heard in these words. So Edmund is an underminer of social order and and the established religion. I wish we could recover the original heretical, subversive dangerousness of Edmund's words. 
But we can, of course. That's why we have great actors, right? I'll give it a little OP treatment, too, just for good measure. As you'll hear, OP lends a vernacular tone to the words and gets us away from the sound of a prestige or politically sanctioned orthodox dialect. That helps with the dangerousness we want, to my mind. So here we go. Thou nature art me goddess, to thy law me services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom, and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me, for that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines lag of a brother? Why bastard? Wherefore base? When me dimensions are as well compact, me mind as generous, and me shape as true as honest, madam's issue. Why brand they us with base, with baseness, bastardy, base, base? Who, in lusty stealth of nature, take more composition and fierce quality than doth within a dull, stale, tired bed, go to the creating a whole tribe of fops got tween asleep and wake? Well then, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land. A father's love is to the bastard Edmund as to the legitimate. A fine word, legitimate. Well, my legitimate, if this letter speed and my invention thrive, Edmund the base shall top the legitimate. I grow, I prosper. Now God stand up for bastards. An amazing speech. So let's uh, take a look through it and see meter at work, since that was my promise about iambic pentameter. On the scanned and scored document from my website, you'll notice that the perfectly iambic lines, de-dum, 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 five weak stress, strong stress feet in a row, stand out without marking. Uh, so the first couple of lines are exactly perfect pentameters, iambic pentameters. Thou nature art me goddess, to thy law, number one, me services are bound, wherefore should I? And that's um, pretty familiar that he will give you a couple of regular pentameters before surprising us, which he does in the third line with what's called an iambic inversion or a trochee. Uh, instead of badam, we have dumdi. Third line, stand in the plague of custom and permit. Then we've got a, another, an irregular line, actually a hexameter with a feminine ending. The curiosity of nations to deprive me. Feminine ending, 13th unstressed syllable. To my way of thinking, these irregular lines, so-called irregular, serve in their irregularity to confirm the basic regularity of the majority of lines, which is a, a wonderful feature of a keyboard, that it can confirm a rhythm by departing from it. Then we have a, a, a feminine ending pentameter. For that I am some twelve or fourteen moon shines. So occasionally he will permit himself a, a confirmatory extra unstressed syllable. And often, 
as he does here, he'll set it up for the trochee that he's produced in the following line. So we get, for that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines lag of a brother. So he starts off with the inverted I am, the so-called trochee lag of a brother. Why, bastard, wherefore base? This too is a hexameter. The first of four hexameters in this speech. Hexameter is a uh, twelve-syllable line. Speaking of hexameters and other long lines, it's almost as if there's too much matter for the meter. It's almost like the ideas or the, or the passion, the emotion, is too big to be contained in a ten-syllable line. And I think you can exploit that, noticing it first of all, but then exploiting it can, can yield that effect. Lag of a brother. Why bastard? Wherefore base? Twelve syllables. Lag of a brother. Why bastard? Wherefore base? Then we start um, another couple of absolutely regular lines. When my dimensions are as well compact, my mind is generous and my shape is true. So he's back to being perhaps a little more sure and has no trouble putting his thoughts and his motions into the regular ten-syllable line. Then the, the third of the hexameters in his speech. As honest madam's issue, why brand they us? Twelve syllables. As honest madam's issue, why brand they us? You can feel it's, it's overly long. And if, if you notice it, you can exploit that and wring the variety out of the speech that's inbuilt. Four or more absolutely regular lines come up with base. With baseness, bastardy, base, base, who in the lusty stealth of nature take more composition and fierce quality than doth within a dull, stale, tired bed. Then he breaks that with the trochee in the next line. Go to the crate and a whole tribe of fops. And then a short line. Got tween us sleep and wake. Well then. Just eight syllables. Tetrameter, we call it. Four feet. You might notice that and think, well, that slows the pace down a little bit. Got tween a slip and wake. Well, then, as he's about to deliver his warning, his, his apostrophe directly to Edgar, the offstage Edgar, it sort of sets up the sneering that's going to follow. Got tween a slip and wake. Well, then, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land. Dumpty, 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 dum. Our father's love is to the bastard Edmund. Feminine ending. As to the legitimate. Fine word, legitimate. Noticing that legitimate is sometimes scanned as legitimate and sometimes as legitimate. Noticing that and exploiting that. A fine accomplishment for an actor, I think. And as he sneers at legitimate in its full four-syllable treatment, that makes this line a hexameter, followed by a trochee. Well, my legitimate, if this letter spade and my invention thrive, trochee on his own name, Edmund the base, shall top the legitimate. I grow, I prosper, feminine ending. And then he concludes, as Shakespeare often loves to, with a short line. Now God stand up for bastards. Gives you an opportunity to slow the pace down to bring it to its conclusion. The next thing I want to say about the rhythm is 
the concept of the caesura, C-A-E-S-U-R-A, a caesura, coming from Julius Caesar, who was not born a woman, but delivered by caesarean section, a cut from his mother, in other words. So they've ad adopted the term caesura to indicate a, a break or a cut in the line. So instead of ten syllables delivered evenly, the caesura breaks the line into two unequal halves. Thou nator art me goddess, to thy law. So after goddess is a caesura. Rather than marching through it, thou nator art me goddess, to thy law. Thou nator art me goddess, to thy law. It's very, very pleasing to break the line into two slightly unequal halves. My services are bound. Wherefore should I, and we have a caesura after bound, some lines, of course, will have punctuation midline. That's a natural caesura. But other lines, the the sense marches directly through without a, a change of grammar. So you have to feel where the caesura might go, if it's needed at all. One or two more lines to point out the caesuras. The third line starts with that trophy. Stan in the plague of custom. And permit, there's your caesura after custom. Rather than stand in the plague of custom and permit, Stand in the plague of custom and permit. Sometimes it's just a lilt. Sometimes it's an outright pause. Sometimes it's just a little suspension. Stand in the plague of custom and permit. Custom and permit. So that's caesura. And you'll see on my scanning document where I've chosen to put caesuras. It makes the verse swing somehow. It makes it breathe. A similar technique to the caesura is that of obeying or observing what's called enjammed lines. From the French to straddle, to put a, one leg on one side and one on the other. A run-on line is called enjammed, E-N-J-A-M-B-E-T. It's where the sense, the grammatical sense, flows across the line ending. We have it uh, in the first three lines, first four lines. So, Thou nature art me goddess, to thy law me services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity? So he's got a long thought flowing across several lines. And it's, uh, it's like there are two masters, two mistresses, as I have said in the book, obeying the architecture of the line and the architecture of the thought. And if the thought flows across the line ending, then we are in danger of turning it into prose. Let me do that just for fun. Reading it as prose without any obedience to line endings. Though nature art me goddess, to thy law me services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of customer and permit the curiosity and nascence to deprive me, for that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines lag of a brother? That could easily be prose. But to extract the prose-like flowing of thoughts across line endings, perhaps across several line endings, plus the shape of the verse. Those two competing tensions are an amazing device for an actor. So, again, letting the f thought flow across those four lines, but still observing the line endings, I'll give it one more time. Though nature art me goddess, to thy law misservices are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity and nascence to deprive me, for that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines lag of a brother? 
you've got your cake and you can eat it too. You can observe prose like the shape of the thought and yet restrained, disciplined, as it were, by the verse form. Fantastic. My realization of that many years ago was like a light bulb for me. Just a couple of other little things about iambic pentameter. It's often referred to as a rising rhythm, and I think that's an extremely useful way to think about it. So instead of an evenly de-dum, 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 it's de-dum, 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 de-dum. And very often Shakespeare will give us the most important word in the line at the end of the verse line. So quoting from a Romeo speech, but soft what light through yonder window breaks. The important thing is that stress, strong and weak syllables are very relative terms. And often a so-called weak syllable will be stronger than a so-called strong syllable. So it's extremely relative. But soft what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east and Juliet is the sun. That redeems it from being something laborious and dutiful. But soft what light through yonder window breaks. You know, when you're first beginning to encounter the concept, one tends to pound it out in a regular fashion, and that's death, of course. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that one must still speculate and discover, even while riding the horse, as I as I call the, the, the verse. Stay on the horse and let it have its head and let it let it do its thing. So you've still got to act, even when you're obeying the meter. And even as one finds freedom within a song while obeying the composer's directions about pitch and duration and everything else, we've got to find the illusion of spontaneity while observing Shakespeare's metrical instruction. After all, if, a, if an audience notices your techniques, you fail. The techniques are useless if, if they're noticed. An audience should only be subliminally aware of when the poet changes from verse to prose, and those effects must be subconsciously delivered. What else can we point out? You'll notice in my scoring that I have highlighted alliteration, a special gift to the actor. It's not just a literary device. It's a gift to an actor, too. So the repeated bees, brother, bastard, base, base, baseness, bastardy, base, base, those drum-like sounds. If you don't notice them, you can't exploit them. You can't make them count. But noticing them and scoring them, you can use it. Noticing catalogues, a fancy word for a list. A list is a hugely powerful thing, isn't it? You've got the, uh, the idea that there are many things on the list, so your argument becomes that more powerful and persuasive as you mount item upon item in the list. You know, and talking about his own physical nature. When my dimensions are as well compact, my mind as generous and my shape as true as honest madam's issue, we're talking about his dimensions, his body, his mind, and his adherence to Gloucester's imprint, as it were, my shape, the way he resembles his father. So I've underlined when Shakespeare breaks into a list of items, a catalogue of, of items. And that helps me exploit the power of the list, the persuasive rhetorical power of the list. Then there's that wonderful alliteration. Why brand they as? You might easily miss brand as you're looking for the alliteration in base and baseness and bastardy base. 
but he extends it. He obviously chose that metaphor, branding, because it has a be, like baseness and bastardy. So I hope that's whetted your appetite for further study of this speech. Edmund King Lear, Act 1, Scene 2, an amazing speech. So amazingly crafted. But if you don't notice all these rhetorical devices, the scansion, everything else that I produce in my scoring document, then you, can, you cannot ring these, these effects that I've spoken of. So, knowledge is power. Your journey towards becoming an A-list actor is the knowledge of the compositional proclivities of the author. So thanks for joining me, Paul Meyer. And again, for that free extra content, and especially the documents I've promised, go to paulmeyer.com, choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar, and click on episode number 66. Email me with your comments and questions if you like. I'd love to hear from you. paul at paulmeyer.com And don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. My guest next month is Jill Purse. Diane of Overtone Chanting. Intrigued? You'll have to wait till next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>